Welcome to NFP, the Non-Fungible Podcast, with your host, D. Klein. Today on NFP, I talk with a famed writer of huge successes, including Wolverine Origin, Hellblazer, and Spider-Man, Paul Jenkins. He joins me to discuss his advocacy for creator rights and how blockchain technology offers cutting-edge solutions to age-old problems in the entertainment industry. We discuss his latest work with Comet.xyz, releasing comics and building communities via NFT technology. Jenkins also explains his story construction process and usage of metaphors to convey important themes. Hey, this is NFP, the non-fungible podcast with me, D. Klein. Today's episode is brought to you by the Koi Network. Koi makes minting NFTs super easy and inexpensive. Just drag and drop your file using their NFT wallet, Finny, and Koi takes care of the rest. Minting costs as little as one cent, so you can create as many NFTs as you want. And when they're viewed by other people, you even earn Koi tokens that you can use to fund your next series. Check it out at koii.network. Right on, Paul Jenkins. Welcome to NFP. Uh, I'm so glad to have you join me here today. I'm honored that you took time to join me for this conversation. Thanks for being here. Right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're all set up. I wanted to ask you about uh, all kinds of things. I'm really fascinated by your story. You know, first of all, this fact that you started off in pretty uh, difficult conditions. You know, uh, I read about you living in a caravan and uh, growing up quite poor uh, and then emerging beyond that and having such success as a creator. And with that, I wanted to talk about your advocacy for creator rights in the, uh, I think it was in 1988, you drafted the creator's bill of rights with a group of independent artists. And now we're kind of full circle here in the blockchain space where creator rights can kind of be baked into a, a technology. And I've, I'd love to learn about that from you. But I also want to learn about you as a writer and your process of writing and how you use stories as a form of metaphor and how that happens. And so I'm really interested in uh, learning from you today. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get it on. Let's see what we can do. Awesome. Now, first of all, I <laughs> wanted to ask you about this story of your your life as a child. I know that you started off basically living. I think it was with with your mother, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe you can start us off talking about how you got from that point to becoming a successful writer in your early stages. I mean, I think it would be difficult to think that that little boy was going to end up living in the United States of America um having success as a creative person you know finding a way to make a business all that kind of stuff you know to be clear about my childhood my father was about five years I, I was about five years old when my father left and he he moved away and <clears throat> my brother and I lived with my mom she didn't have anything there was no way for her to really look after us um but she worked for um the farmer at the top of the hill for a while so it was the first place we really went to as it was the second place we went to so what you have to understand is my mom is is like an amazingly brilliant human being. She's very, very, very intelligent. And she was all about education and learning when I was a little kid. She became a teacher after time. But she had grown up at a time when it was frowned upon for women to be divorced. And she had grown up at a time when oh. it was frowned upon for little girls to get an education. So she didn't even have a high school diploma when my dad was gone. And <clears throat> under those circumstances... If when we will talk, I think in a little while about the origin of Wolverine, um, but if you open up the Wolverine origin, you'll actually see that there's a kid that lives at the bottom of the hill and looks up at the hill at the farm with all the lights blazing. And that was my brother and I. 
And mm. at times I've lived in a caravan. A couple of times I've been homeless. You know, just it, it was challenging. But the thing that you have to understand is my mum also wanted to make sure that we experienced life in such a way that we could see things that other people weren't seeing. And I've written about that so much that ultimately, if you just see the world through the eyes of a child, or if you just see the world through my eyes, you can see all the magic right there. And so, for example, we used to live uh, around a lot of gypsy kids. And it was very fascinating to me now that I would go to school with a lot of um, rather wealthy farmers kids because my brother and I would walk to school every day, rain or shine, we'd walk across the fields and we'd get there. And here are all these wealthy farmers kids, it, it felt, and and they didn't like the gypsy kids who would be the same kids that we would see when we would go home. So I lived in two worlds from the beginning and I've written about that so much. That ultimately, there's so much magic that we don't see if if we're so busy concentrating on the destination, for example, we miss everything. Interestingly enough, on the first NFT project that um, that I worked on, which was Bitcoin Origins, that was a massive theme. It was something that was thematically sort of built into what we were doing. Um, so it felt really cool to be in this space and writing about that stuff as usual, you know. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about that, you know, like taking your life experience, but going beyond that as a writer and stories as, as a metaphor, like and I was really curious about your construction process, you know, in terms of, are you starting with that big idea and then going into the details or, you know, I often experience for myself as a writer, it often happens the other way. I'll write something and it, as it happens, it kind of a theme emerges. Like what's your experience with that? I think, you know, I try to practice what I preach. And so, you know, I teach from time to time and I will usually say, if you can't explain to me why you're doing this, like what this means, the point of why you're writing something don't start yet you know like you have to know why right mm -hmm. um and and for me then i think theme comes relatively early when i'm thinking of ideas so so it might probably go like this i think of an idea that i think might be an interesting thing to write about and immediately i'm looking for why why what's the theme there what is it that we know because ultimately when somebody reads a book they may as well be opening a mirror right they 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 open a book and they're looking at themselves and mm -hmm. i feel like if you've got no there there then there's no point right if you like robots and you write about robots that's fantastic and everything but there's no point right unless you can explain like why what what's what's happening to the people why is it a reflection of us so ideas come from all over the place uh inspiration is really difficult to pin down um it might be just something i've usually something i've seen something i want to write about but then i gotta say to myself this is the reason i'm writing this and if i can't find a reason i'm not making it you know um so i think generally theme starts very very early in my process mm -hmm. perhaps the reason that it might be different for me is as a journalistic writer i'll often write a story about someone and as i'm learning about them there's certain themes that emerge yeah. like I look at your life and I look at how you know there's this story of your life of being an advocate for others mm -hmm. and that that kind of emerges in your story as a theme to me yeah yeah I think I learned that advocacy look again I think I probably learned that a little bit by osmosis uh sort of being around my mom you know uh I mm. think that she was somewhat downtrodden in the sense that she's a single mom uh, I remember going to my primary school which is sort of the elementary school in Britain and um knowing that my head master did not like my mom 
just didn't oh. approve of her. And now my mum is pretty quirky and difficult individual, I think, to understand at times. But, you know, there was no reason for him to particularly feel like she wasn't living up to the standards that he felt would be normal, you know, normal in air quotes, right? Um, and so I felt that, you know, I, I have always had certain traits um, that are just part of who I am. Um, advocating for people to be given an opportunity, for example. Um, I did not. I'm, I'm in, a, in a weird situation. I did not have a mentor. I did not have an advocate. I didn't have a father figure, uh, particularly. Despite all of that, I managed to make it through. And I think it would be interesting to see me with that father figure of some kind. Um, I wonder what it would have done to me. But essentially, I, I, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and I got here and I did really well. And I thought the chances of that happening are one in a million, you know. Um, and, and we don't all get one in a million, do we? So it's good yeah. to be an advocate. It's good to help people. It's good to, I, I got one horrible affliction. I just have always stood up to bullies. I hate it. I can't stand it. <laughs> can't understand why somebody wants to hurt or go after somebody. Uh, there's no reason to enslave someone. There's no reason to subjugate somebody. And I think that's generally part of my own makeup. So I landed in the ideal place because we, with Ninja Turtles and with Tundra Publishing, we were very, very active and cared very much about creators. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a teacher, you know, I see it and often the ones who are the uh, bullies have been bullied in one way or another in their own yeah. lives. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a cycle that you see. Right. Yeah. And when I say I stand up to them, I actually don't really stand up to them in terms of like physically or any of that. Now I, I what I do is I befriend them, you know, generally I mm -hmm. try, right. Uh, you try to do that and sometimes you can't, but essentially, you know, deescalate, try to help bullies see if they can look at themselves a little bit stuff like that but don't let people you know hurt other people I just think that's an important thing and so it's interesting you know you write about um spider-man or or characters that really live in that space and I could see I could put a little bit of myself into some of those characters as I worked in the mainstream mm -hmm. now I mean early on of course you know you're you're a kid still you're I believe you were going into acting. Is that correct? Yeah. Now you were going into acting and you run into a few people. I think Kevin Eastman being one of them, uh, creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, can you tell me about, you know, this, this early experience of, you know, kind of moving from acting over into writing and how that happened with that particular group of people? Well, I hadn't, I think I was beginning to see that I probably wasn't going to follow the field of acting. I like it okay. and, you know, I enjoy it, but mm -hmm. I spent a little bit more of my time working on filmmaking. Um, I spent more of my time in film school. I was transitioning, I think, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I come to the States, I'm teaching music and drama to learning disabled children. And I meet a couple of guys that have this black and white comic book that they've, they've made into a TV show and it's the Ninja Turtles, you know, and it's in Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, I end up working uh, with those guys. You know, I'd broken my leg playing football, soccer, pretty much typically of me. And um, I needed a job and I was playing with a band and they did an album cover for us. Right. And so I I said to them, I could use a job. And they said, yeah, we could use some people because this thing's taking off. We've got a TV show now. <laughs> and I, I went up and it was like a few months and all of a sudden, I mean, it just exploded. And yeah. It was blowing up anyway, but it really exploded. And then we made the first film. You know, the first one came about. And that when that film hit, 
anyone who's old enough to remember it will remember that kids were just lined up around cinemas. They were just lined up around the blocks trying to get into this film. And I think it that and then maybe when they revived the Star Wars films are the last two times I can remember people really queuing up to try to get into a movie theater because they were desperate to do it, you know. And it was a worldwide phenomenon. The toys were crazy. We didn't realize almost like what part of history we'd have. And there's so many things I think about now, like, you know, we had a toy cupboard that I ran and people just kept stealing from it all the time. And uh, so I ended up kind of closing the door and locking it up and not letting people in. And there was so much stuff that got taken. I keep thinking all of that is just nostalgia at this point. You know? Sure. Um, it's worth a lot of money, I suppose, you know, but uh, <laughs> it was a crazy time. And what we cared about very much was the fact that Kevin and Pete, who were very humble about this, the two creators knew that they were lucky and they they said it often. They didn't say, we are amazing. We create the Ninja Turtles. They said, we are lucky. We create the Ninja Turtles. And so they offered that back, especially Kevin, who remains one of my best friends in all the world. Um, they offered that back to creators and they want to make sure that creators had a chance to to thrive. So here am I, 22, 23, 24 years old, and I suddenly become a director of a publishing company with Kevin. And I'm lucky enough to have people like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore that I'm editing. And uh, being exposed to Neil, Alan, Rick Veach, Dave McKean, George Pratt, all of these incredible comic book creators is what gave me the understanding that I could probably do it. Mm. so where along this timeline was it that you uh, started writing hellblazer because that's kind of an interesting story how you kind of just did that out of the blue like you know you didn't have uh a portfolio to show uh i think it was dc correct mm. um how in the world did that happen and i don't know exactly where that was on that timeline well it happened in the way that it can't happen right <laughs> and so there is no way to break into comic books like this um i suppose i was around comics obviously so I've this is around. not a winning formula i can just put on tiktok for people to copy. it's not winning formula people ask me how do i break <laughs> in and mark wade has famously got this really great answer he says when the when the big comic book companies find out how you broke in they close the avenue off forever so no one else can break <laughs> in that way <laughs> i see <laughs> um so we, yeah we don't know how it's done but um basically i had been alan moore's editor on big numbers um, which is a famous book that he never finished with Bill Sienkiewicz. And um, I was over in Northampton, Massachusetts. I, I did have a bunch of people that I edited or, or you know, we, we sort of had their projects at Tundra. And I was, I was at Alan's house and he was showing me this incredible thing, which I, I wish I had it. I wish I, I just asked him, can I have that, man? <laughs> you know, and it was this 12 issue breakdown of what happens to each character through every one of the 12 issues, because that story was about fractal mathematics and the Mandelbrot set and causality and all that kind of stuff. So it was really an amazing, unbelievable, unfinished work. And I'm sitting with Alan and we're talking about stuff and just lucky enough, just kind of hang with him for a little bit. And as we were talking, he would say like, well, you know, Paul, sometimes I think all I do is make a page. I'm doing my Alan Moore impression. I do a page <laughs> and I finish it and I look at it and I go, can that page open up any comic book and find any page of my work and it should be able to tell a story by itself, just one page. And I thought, that's funny. I think like that. I think they should. You know, it's like I, I realized it wasn't that I was just learning from Alan. I, I might have had some of those instincts, right? So I went to Alan. I actually said, you know, man, I've been thinking of writing because I see a lot of stuff come in 
come in, especially in pitches. And I, I keep thinking to myself, man, there's no effort. You know, there's very little effort sometimes put into the mainstream comics that you would see where there'd be giant, you know, 7 million selling comic book. And I kept thinking there's nothing there. There's no story. I, I don't see a theme. And he went, we should have a go, Paul. <laughs> so that year I went down to San Diego and I met the editor of Hellblazer. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked him, I heard you're looking for a new writer. And it is literally the most prestigious book, I think, in comics to write, or it felt like it was at the time. Sure. It's not the most prestigious book in sales, but it certainly is the one that all pros want to do. And he asked me what I'd written. And I told him, well, I haven't written anything before. <laughs> and for some reason, Lou Snathis <laughs> gave me a chance. And so did Karen Berger, the editor-in-chief. And they called me up about six weeks later and said, congratulations, you're the new writer. Um, and now that kind of blows my on. mind. Like on, on what grounds were they basing that decision in your opinion? If they had no experience with your writing, they asked me to write a sample script. I don't even know how they bothered to read it. I wrote a sample script for Hellblazer. I'm sure it's on my desktop somewhere. And <laughs> I wrote it and they wrote back to me and said, can you rewrite something? And we need you to put them in panel breakdowns and stuff. And I said, okay, I rewrite yep. them in panel breakdowns and they saw at least I was pliable. Yep. And so they called me up and just said, well done, you're the new writer. And I was like, okay, great. I mean, I like, is no, this real? <laughs> no, I didn't even, I, I just was like, great. I asked for it. So I got it. I didn't realize what I'd done. Amazing. Yeah. Now this was at a time that, you know, the comic book industry was kind of facing a little bit of stagnation, right? Overall. Like, I mean, Marvel was in like rough shape. I mean, I think I, I collected comics as a teenager. I'm a little younger than you, a few years. Uh, I'd collected uh, comics as a teenager. And right around the time that the Marvel was like on the verge of bankruptcy, that's right around the time that I was married with little kids. So I wasn't paying as much attention to comics. Like a lot of people apparently, because that was what was happening to the industry as a whole was a real stagnation experience. Um, and then you come in. Uh, can you tell me about like what happened there? Because you made this move over from from DC into Marvel and basically it was a revival of, uh, of, of Marvel as a, as a company. Yeah. Marvel were in chapter 11 bankruptcy and um, you know, they were going out of business. I mean, they were really struggling and I think everybody mm-hmm. realizes and knows that, you know, that they were, they were going out of business. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really challenging. And um, <clears throat> they reached out to me via jay lee who was the artist he was actually the one that i think got the gig um jay and i had thought about doing a hellblazer hell shock crossover he had this book called hell shock that he did and he wasn't really putting very many issues out he'll admit that you know um and and often people had encouraged us to do a hellblazer hell shock crossover and we had no idea what to do because uh, we didn't have a story for it and one day jay calls me up and said you know i got joe and jimmy from event comics have gone over to do um and i knew those guys a little bit they've gone over to do um comics over at marvel they've taken on four titles and they asked me to do one and who do i want to work with and i said i'd be great if i work with paul so he got me the gig right and uh, i said that sounds great man he said yeah they're gonna do this thing called marvel knights and uh and then he said um so how do you feel about the Inhumans? And I said, they're great. Who are they? I have no idea. Uh, I'm just not, I don't know anything about comics, even though I do lots of them. And so we did the Inhumans and we won an Eisner Award and they just had not won one for a long time. And they were very excited about the possibility of what Joe and Jimmy had done and what we could do because Joe and Jimmy took on, I think, four books 
one of them didn't quite hit its mark. I think the Punisher didn't quite find its audience. But Black Panther, back in those days, sold 50 issues. It got to at least 50 issues, if not more. That's amazing for that book. Daredevil was not being published anymore. They did it with Kevin Smith. The sales went through the ceiling. And we did in humans, and I think it sold pretty well, but it won an award, and they just were like, you two guys are changing everything. So they gave Joe the job as the editor-in-chief, and then they turned to me and said, you know, what do you want to write? You can do anything. And I'm an idiot, and I said, <laughs> I don't want to do Spider-Man. I don't want to do the Avengers. I want to do the Sentry. <laughs> and it is a character that I had pitched to them for years. I had been asking them to do this project right from before, I almost around when I did um hellblazer for vertigo and right after i started hellblazer i made a pitch to karen berger the head of of, of uh, vertigo and it was for something similar to the century it's called our man um because i was fascinated by the idea that somebody could take a pill and they could be a superhero for one hour because mm. i would think that is the highest level of addiction of any kind of pill you could ever take and so i wanted to write about addiction and and all that kind of stuff and illness mental health issues uh, but we couldn't really do it because she wasn't allowing superheroes into vertigo she asked me to create a new character so i created the sentry and then i pitched it to dc and pitched it to marvel and they said no so now i've won an eyes and the, the the world is my oyster and I, they say what do you want to do and i said i want to do the sentry and they were like no they're like oh, crap. <laughs> well that thing and they did it you can do anything now. well not anything <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they, they were like not any okay we'll do it and they did it and it ended up he ended up becoming a member of the avengers and becoming a new character for them and he's really been quite prominent you know so yeah well i mean uh i've learned a little bit about your experience pitching stories over the years and how there's often <laughs> resistance to yeah. your pitches and it's like yeah. hey but you know you've got a pretty good record of success here you know can you talk about that experience of pitching stories and you know, how you kind of have to go against the grain sometimes with what, you know, the executives kind of envision as, you know, maybe a safe uh, IP and kind of going against yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it happens constantly. I think it's just this like built in resistant uh, risk aversion. Um, sure, let's make a sequel instead, right? Like that. Yeah, kind make of a sequel instead, right? because you, <laughs> you know that you can recycle Godzilla, give it another three more years and they will recycle yeah. Godzilla again because there's a brand new audience that comes every seven years and there's a new audience of little kids that will go, great, Godzilla, right? You know what, that, what, what happens there and it becomes a nostalgia play. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> there's this tremendous risk aversion. I mean, you can talk to James Cameron who'd made all these films and then he wants to do Avatar and they're like, no. And so... I would find it all the time. Just here's a good idea. No, you sure? No. Okay. Well then I'm definitely going to insist on doing it. Now we do the century. It does really well. Okay. So I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And now I'm pitching this. And your answer is, mm, I'm not sure about that. And you go like, I don't get it. I don't understand why you're not sure. You And, and usually it's for one reason that the people running the creative industries are normally not creative in any way, shape or form, right? Not in LA, not in film industry, not in, in, uh, I think more in games, actually in video okay. games. I, I yeah. see a bit more creative people, you know, near the top of it. Um, but, but, you know, not also in, in comics sometimes, right? Like it's like they're, they're consumers. They've read loads of copies, but then you say, okay, let's talk about like content and writing. And they're like, I don't know, you know? So I feel like, just this horrible resistance that always would come to pitching ideas that I felt would work. And um, mm -hmm. it's frustrating, but what can you do? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you've said yourself, um, I'm not quoting you, but I know you've said in the past, money's not that important to you. You've lived in in situations where you experienced poverty and, you know, mm -hmm. for them, I mean, their bottom line is, hey, this has got to be profitable, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they, they look at a guarantee of profitability. So yeah. I would have thought that you could see someone like myself, other people that have done really well and made a lot of money for people, you know, and then when we pitch, you would go, I get that. Like this guy seems to get what they're doing, right? But it happens all the time. People just kind of, there's a few reasons. Either they're risk averse or they want to shape it themselves. So they want to put their stamp on it or whatever. There's all these reasons. And most of them are based in either ego or fear. Uh -huh. And you sit uh -huh. there and you go like, I remember when I took over, of all things, um, I took over Hellblazer. And the guy who went before me, Garth Ennis, had had a very long and successful run. And people said, you must be scared. And I'm like, it's a comic book. What am I scared of? <laughs> and then I took over Spider-Man. And he he was really, they were thinking of actually canceling the publication of Spider-Man, I believe, at the time. And then people said, well, you must be scared. There's every Spider-Man story has ever been written. And I said, I've never written him. So I don't, I doubt it. What am I supposed to be scared about exactly? And I think that confidence is exactly equal to accomplishment. And it's not arrogance, just confidence. Like, of course, I can tell a story. I, I feel like I can tell a story anywhere. So why not, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and you're going to tell a story that's from you. So there, in that sense, there's no competition. Right, because uh, no one else can climb inside my head. And so, you know, I've often been asked about characters that I've worked on, or especially even the century that I created or other characters I've created and, and what my opinion is of the person that went next. I think sometimes that's just bait, you know, people trying to get me mm. to say something like, I don't like it or something. Um, my answer is it's correct. Like, like my opinion is as much as important as anybody's. In other words, it's just my opinion. Um, but, you know, whatever anyone does after me with a character is 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 great you know good for them right because that's their version of the character and it's their turn to tell that story so mm -hmm. i don't know maybe it's just that built-in sort of defense of creators i suppose but i mean as a writer surely i mean maybe not surely have you ever had times where you wrote something you're like i don't know i feel kind of vulnerable sharing this like this is something that you know i don't know if i'm you know ready to hear criticism about this this work or has that have you ever experienced that <clears throat> well it's a really good question the answer is not very simple, I think. Um, I believe in what I make because I make it for the right reasons. And then there have been a few times when I've agreed to compromise to do the thing that some publisher wanted. And every single time I look back at that work, I go like, that was never good. It was never like there's a few books I wrote for during my Spider-Man run. They asked me at one point, can you do the organic web shooters? Because they were coming out from you know you're the guy to do it and i said uh, i don't get it like i don't see what so that's not a story that's a thing mm. you know there's no reason unless I'm, i kept trying to find a way to manufacture it and in the end i started saying to them guys i think when you have stories like that like i'm not really a guy for that like i don't feel like mine thematically have a certain reason for existing you know um so i i think you have to really believe in what you write i don't think i'm right all the time i think that i am right enough that there's enough of a body of work that i and and if there's something i really believe in then i want to write it so i can look um i i, I say this a lot uh from marvel my favorite book that i ever wrote was was called captain america theater of war and it was four um single issue stories all about 35 pages so they're quite big stories 
um and every single one of them make you cry successively until you get to the last one just weeping uncontrollably on the bathroom <laughs> floor you know and they were all about the plight of the common soldier and they were very much about my family and and losses in wartime you know uh great grandparents of mine who were killed in the first war means that my grandparents never met their 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 parents it reverberated through my family how do i write about growing up you know i up until about four or five years ago i didn't really speak about like growing up poor um because i didn't mm. really think it was anybody's business you know it's like it's okay because it didn't affect me that much it was one thing to understand about this so that we're really clear um growing up trying to work out like you know i'm sure my mum spent a lot of time trying to work out how we're going to get food or where we're going to eat you know so she played little games that i thought were actually pretty ingenious like she would get like a Mars bar, which is in Britain. I don't know, the American version is different, but in Britain, it's sort of like caramel and chocolate. and Same as that. Canada, yeah. Mm-hmm. Same as Canada, I think, yeah, yeah. And um, she would cut it into slices. Like mm. she'd get one Mars bar and cut it into like 20 slices. And then you would get one sometimes. And so it just felt like a treat. There's no, and, and I believe that Buddhists um, you know, will, will often do this. You take an apple and contemplate it when you're really hungry and look at the apple and hang, hang out with that apple for an hour. And there's no, no taste like that first bite of that apple. It tastes better. And so having that experience meant that I didn't, I didn't feel like any of the challenges and difficulty that we faced was something that affected me. It really just didn't. And it was very difficult for my brother. I think he went, he went through some tough times, you know? Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, through this, we were talking about, you know, kind of putting yourself out there as a creator, you know, I know that one of the bigger breakthroughs was of course, the Wolverine story and origin. And there was some resistance you faced there initially, I believe when you were first coming up with this concept, you know, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, there was some resistance because when when we first pitched it, there was resistance mm-hmm. from within Marvel and the editors, and they were really right. worried about it. But there was resistance from fans. You, I, I remember the day it came out, I happened to be in Vancouver, funnily enough. And um, there I was. Well, I thought, I'll, I'll go. I don't do this very often, but I thought this this thing seems like it's blowing up, you know. And I went into a comic book store to go and sort of see how the sales were. Because one thing mm-hmm. I won't do is kind of walk into a comic book store and say who I am, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. It's not who my I kind am. of thing. <laughs> do you know who I am, right? Yeah. Uh, so so I just kind of walked in. And as I was walking in, the first day of sales, a, a lady was in there with a little kid. And she said, I heard that they're doing the origin of Wolverine. And I would love to buy a copy for my son. And, mm-hmm. the, and the retailer was angry and was unselling her the book. This is stupid. They're going to mess it up. And I'm like, why are you doing that for? Why are you doing this? This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. That lady doesn't buy comics and her kid wants a comic. And in the end, by the way, if she'd have bought it, that comic book is actually worth quite a bit of money, I guess, it now. So this guy's like yeah. unselling a book to a fan. <clears throat> so, you know, there was a lot of resistance and then um, I went through this pretty funny situation with you Canadians, which which cracked me up. So the thing was, I knew he was Canadian and I knew I had written it. And I believe you're from Alberta, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. OK, so there are lots and lots and lots of cornfields in Alberta, right? Yes. I mean, it's, you know, as far as the, the eye can the, see. It's as far as the eye can see. But cause, you know, people being dumb. They didn't realize that, you know, just because it's got a lot of cornfield doesn't mean to say it's Nebraska, right? 
but they assumed that we were raising him in Nebraska. So I went to, I believe, a Canadian comic book convention around about issue three, where you still hadn't worked out that this is in Alberta. And every Canadian person was just so mad at me, right? And I'm like, <laughs> I, ca I can't tell you what's going to happen, but you're making a lot of assumptions that he's, that he's American and he's not Canadian. You're making an awful lot of assumptions. So... I would kind of say like, well, you just got to keep reading, wink, wink. You know, I'm like, just keep reading, <laughs> you'll see. And everybody was a bit grumpy with me, but you know, I suppose we. Like... <laughs> then issue five and four, five and six came out, and I went to another convention in Canada, and I was literally Canada's favorite son. People bringing me right. food, <laughs> hugging me, thanking me, crying all over me. You gave us our, our hero. I'm like, I, he always was. I promise. I never yeah. made him in Nebraska. So. It was a it was a really weird time, and I loved it because you know you lot are so polite anyway. You're like Brits, <laughs> you're, like, you're like extended Brits, you know. So. Have you seen a different topic? Have you seen this uh, show Last of Us on HBO? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I have a funny connection to the Last of Us. I haven't seen the show, um, but but I was around, you know, when they were making the game, you know, and um, I'm uh -huh. I'm friendly with Amy Hennig, who was the creative director of it, Naughty Dog, and I would be on set sometimes when Last of Us, and and when Amy was working on Uncharted as well, so I was pretty familiar with what that franchise was and why that franchise was because Amy and I were big, um, I hope, uh, Amy more so than me because she's so well known, you know, but um we're really flying the flag for storytelling in video games. Once mm -hmm. somebody told us that you can't do that, I heard it plenty of times. You can't tell stories in games. I'm like, that means you can't do it. I'm about <laughs> to hold my beer and watch this. Let's go tell stories. So right. we did uh, a video game together called Soul Reaver. Mm -hmm. And Soul Reaver was really in was a time. That a 3DO game? It was Crystal Dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What I mean, 3D O. Do you remember the yeah, console? Yeah, yeah, I do remember the console. I don't know if it was it was Crystal Dynamics or was it like the first PlayStation? I don't remember. PlayStation, I think. Yeah, yeah PlayStation. Okay. I don't think it was 3D O. Okay. Um, probably made a Dreamcast appearance or something, depending on how long. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, that game was about Gnosticism and and the Ouroboros and the snake that eats its own tail and destiny and all that kind of stuff in a video game in the mid nineties and everyone said, you can't do that. And we're like, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So knowing that Amy took her creative ability and her true belief that games are stories, vehicles, I was, was always a learning experience for me. Amy's so brilliant. And I was so lucky to work with her. And she is another of the people that's really helped me shape my identity as a creative person. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason why I was reminded of The Last of Us is because it was filmed in Alberta. But oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting connection because, of course, you've also done a lot of writing for a lot of video games and God of War, for example, being one of them, I believe. Well, God of War, you know, just to be really clear about it, um, not really in the sense that um, I did work on some original materials. I, I actually worked with Dave Jaffe um, uh -huh. on Twisted Metal Black, which was really uh -huh. cool because okay. David created yeah. Twisted Metal um, and then they brought him back. And so right. early on in the in the endeavor, um, you know, Dave called me up and I worked on some original stuff. But, you know, I wouldn't put my work on. I mean, Dave, God of War's Dave's, you know. Um, I see. Yeah, but um, I had a really cool experience. I mean, I, I would probably put this to everyone that, you know, when I wrote The Darkness for 2K, eventually it became 2K. It started off with Majesco. 
I'll kind of submit that that game as a storytelling game is one of the more emulated games. And some of the stuff that I did with Darkness and then of all things like Prototype for Vivendi Universal is the founding materials that you find across Bioshock. You find it across Assassin's Creed. Like A lot of stuff we did ended up in those other games. I know about Bioshock because my producer was the producer of Bioshock. So when stuff that we did in Darkness showed up in Bioshock, I was like, that's cool, you cheeky bug. <laughs> He's like, well, hey, I'm your producer, so I can do what I like. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> he, he could just play with them. Yeah, That's for right. sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, how this is kind of carried over now. I mean, we um, now you're working with a company, I think they're called Comet. We kind of discussed that before yeah. the show how this was pronounced exactly, .xyz. Um, so, yeah, so let, let's just get into that for one second. This is why we're yeah, yeah. still struggling with it. <laughs> we think it might be Comet. It's K-O-M-E-T-H dot X-Y-Z. Right. Comet. But um, <laughs> we have a lovely editor there. They're, they're from Indonesia, the guys. And our, our fantastic editor, Dimar, we called him up and we said, Dimar, you know, we want to make sure that we pronounce Cometh, or so we thought, is it Cometh or Cometh? And he wrote, he gave us a an audio file and he said, I just want you to know it's Comet. And then we were still really confused. We were like, is that because Dimar's not very good at pronouncing his THs? So he's trying to say Comet. So we've had a lot of confusion, but usually we call it Comet. Okay. So it's Comet.xyz. And this I find a really interesting, like a fulfillment of things because going way back to 1988, when you were a part of this creator bill of rights and writing about, you know, how artists should maintain, you know, a level of ownership over their work. Uh, and then, you know, more recently you did like crowdfunding for work. And now here you are in the blockchain space in NFTs with Comet, uh, with your work. I think the first series is called Garden Point, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yep. You know, and I found what was really interesting in that kind of looking into the setting of it, how it's kind of this corpocracy kind of setting and, you know, um, really, you know, it seems to me to reflect a lot of what we're seeing going on in the world right now, of course. Yeah. You know, can you talk to me about your inspiration for that work? Yeah. Um, you know, we're writing four titles with Comet. And um, the first one, Garden Point, is very much mm -hmm. about three orphans who are living in a corporatocracy, as you said, or corpocracy, I can't remember what you said, um, but essentially in a place that's dominated by a corporation. Um, and, and you know, I think that we live in that right now. I think we're trying to all work out what does it mean that someone like Jeff Bezos has $420 billion in the bank? You know, this is an obscene amount of money and, and, and this obscenity juxtaposed against people struggling to work at. You know, I heard something recently and it really hit me that that back in the 50s, 60s, maybe 70s, the expectation was that, you know, this doesn't have to be in terms of like gender roles, but dad would go to work, mom would stay at home, two kids, go on vacation twice a year, save enough money and also have a house. And that's the expectation. Now you've got two parents working constantly and they can barely keep up. And it's just that 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 off that opportunity has flooded into the hands of just a few people so i'm an old punk right like you know i've got gray hair right let's see there it is under there i've got gray hair because i've lived long enough to have been around when i was a little kid punk rock hit and and even then we knew then what was happening now right that ultimately it it was 
it was special interests and corporate interests and government interests that completely surpassed the interests of any individual because <clears throat> when you add in the internet and realize that you have weaponized people's cognitive biases against them, People feel and are almost powerless to work out how things happen. You look at the, the the complete destruction of the judicial and legal system to defend people. Um, if if people who are so interested in owning a gun, which I again I'm not going to answer argue that question, maybe you can have a right to own a gun, but if they're so interested in the Second Amendment as part of it in the United States of America, then I hope they're well-versed on the Sixth Amendment and the Thirteenth Amendment. I hope you care about the amendments of the Constitution, and it's not just that you want a gun. And I think that's the important part, is like the Sixth Amendment talks a little bit about people's right to a speedy trial, and yet you got some young black kid downtown in Atlanta where I live, you know, and he's been sitting around for like two years waiting for a trial, been in mm -hmm. jail, incarcerated. So I hope everyone's outraged about that, because if you're not, then you're hypocr hypocritical, right? And I think that's something that we, as young punks, were just yelling about. Like, look at this. Can't you see what's happening? Like, people are so overwhelmed by their cognitive biases that what we don't see is that people should have a right to freedom for real, for real. Um, they should have a right to determine their own ideas and their own actions in some ways. You know, it should be government. Like if you if you speak to any government official, um, you should say you work for me. You work for me. I don't work for you. You work for me because I pay my taxes and I pay your wages. Now, I'm not a political person and it sounds like I am, but I'm actually not. I'm, I'm, I don't do politics in any way. And here we come now into this world where ultimately to me, DGEN was the new punk. That, that that what needed to happen was that people were starting to look up and say, why is my money in these institutions? Why mm -hmm. are my why is it why can't I self-determine enough of my life? And the answer is because other people control the key part of it, which is finance. And here comes crypto, here comes NFT, here comes this opportunity to take it and give creators an opportunity to thrive, give people an opportunity to thrive, decentralize a bunch of stuff. So it sounds like a political argument that I'm making, but it's nothing to do with politics. It's a humanist argument that we should all be looking at. Right. Well, I mean, in a way, I don't know if you can separate them. I mean, if you look at, you know, where we are now, in a lot of ways, it feels to me like we're almost returning to a sort of feudalism in a way where, you know, the majority of people don't own anything, right? Yep. They yep. They live like in your comic, you know, they're living yeah. in an apartment that's, you know, owned by corporations, for example, yeah. you know, and that's kind of the way it seems to be trending for a lot of people is that they become serfs in a sense. It seems that way. And so, you know, the conversation about it becomes what seems to be a political one. And that's because ideas have been weaponized by right. politicians. And we see this. Mm -hmm. If you think of this, then you must be a conservative. If you think that you must be a liberal. And that's not true right it can never be true but of course division works very well for politicians so when you see people being divided when you see people being marginalized when you see ideas that sort of say if you're a republic say in america right if you're a republican mm -hmm. you don't like um you don't believe in climate change you don't uh, like say i don't know covid jabs or something right like but if you're a, a liberal you do believe in climate change and you do want a covid jab or something like that but your reason for wanting to get a shot for COVID or for believing in climate change should never be that you're a Democrat. Right. It should be that that's what you think, <laughs> right? right? 
and we don't seem <laughs> to be able to get out of this brain space. And so what 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 Garden Point can be about a little bit, it's about three orphans who are unable to get past that machine because the machine tends to control us. And so what they do is they they learn how to see the world with magic and they realize that we've all got magic. They find their way into the garden, which is hidden right in front of your eyes, but you just can't see it unless you look at it properly. And I have written about that constantly. I actually have a book coming out on book.io. It's on the Cardano network. And it's called Curiosity, and it's about a guy who's just given up. He's just an insurance investigator, and he's given up seeing the world the way that it should be. And then he learns how to re-see it, how to unlook at things and see them like a kid. So I feel like I've been writing about that since I was a little kid, and I could see the magic in the world because I grew up with foxes and stoats and weasels, and I walked to school. And I, the trade-off for growing up poor was growing up in the magic of the countryside. And so my brother still lives in a caravan with no electricity, right? And yet he's, he has on his piece of land a, a a bunch of old roundhouses. There's a Roman excavation going on just in the valley around the corner. Last time I went to go to see him, we went down the pub and at three o'clock in the morning, we kind of wound our way back drunk, drunk as lords. And then we went to go visit Steve. And Steve was a, an English king that had been buried under the had been like covered over but he was buried by the old shore and everyone the locals knew that steve was there and so someone dug him up and the locals were so annoyed that they made sure that they reburied steve and let him go back you know don't know what his real name was but steve was as good as any right so the magic of the countryside and growing up with that is so important it's what made me who i am what made me create the way that i do and the idea that it's just constantly being destroyed and it's it's not that money is being taken. Okay, sure, that's a sec. It's the ideas, which are the most powerful things in the world, are constantly being destroyed by these people. And it's time for us to take the reins ourselves. And here comes, you know, crypto and Web3 and, and the chance to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you have, you know, a lot of issues with regulation. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, fraud and predatory behavior. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's difficult yeah. to navigate that, you know, because on the yep. one side, you say, hey, all this regulation in the long term, it's probably a good thing. You know, uh, at the same time, you know, is it too heavy handed that you end up damaging the industry to an extent that America no longer is the place where crypto is innovated upon and it's helping happening elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic point, right? And so, can't we do this? I mean, as a species, as a group of people, can't we try to do this? It does. There's there's a scene in um, in JFK where the main character, Kevin Costner's character, says, "Look, particle physics says that an elephant can hang off the cliff with its tail tied to a daisy, right? But our eyes and ears tell us that it cannot." I mean, he's and he's right. So if you extrapolate from that. Can't we look at regulation and say, yeah, some regulation would be important because I've seen a bunch of rugs. You know, I know a couple of groups where people I knew they were doing it when they were doing it. They were rug pulling. You know, it's awful. At the same time, that overregulation will just completely destroy it and it becomes in somebody's pocket. Mm -hmm. And it is possible for us to look as rational people at this and just go, where's the regulation? It should be there. Where does it stop? And where does it feed special interests? Like we can all see it. It's not that difficult. We're all smart. 
So why don't we just regulate the way that helps us and then not allow, you know, the self-interest to regulate so that it just pays them. And, and a good analogy to draw would be this or a comparison, I should say. Um, we just worked out how to do nuclear fusion. I've just spoken about this a, a few weeks um, we, we know how to do it now, and we know that mm -hmm. we're on the path now to provide people with stuff via nuclear fission, nuclear fusion. It's going to be free energy. It means you walk out your front door, you pick up the substance that you need, you, you fuse it, and the energy that comes out of it is more than you put in. That means you've got a net gain of energy, which means it's going to be something that is not just free, it's overabundant, and it's going to basically give people the stuff that they could have. That means without trying to sound like, you know, uh, a political person or anything like that everyone gets a house everyone gets a car everyone gets if we have more energy coming back to be able to give people an opportunity to live in a house and and build stuff and do all the things that we need to do right for everyone so we've either got that way or some corporation is going to control the process and then we pay for it through the nose and we stay the way that we are so the question is going to be what do we do and i think that's up to us um and I think that we just have to work out, you know, are we going to allow ourselves to experience magic and do it together? Or are we going to be allow ourselves to be divided? Um, ask yourself this question. If you went online, when was the last time you typed the word hate? When was the last time you typed something about politics? Because if you're doing that, you need to just take a look and say, maybe I should cut myself in half. Like, let's not do that. Let's do half as much as I do right now, because it's all that people talk about. And so they don't see themselves with their biases weaponized against them. Mm -hmm. That was quite mm -hmm. a diatribe, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Uh, it does lead me to a question about like, you know, NFTs are relatively speaking compared to what you've experienced as a highly successful writer. And like, you don't get more mainstream than the products that you've, you know, been behind uh, in, in terms of the entertainment industry. Uh, why why go into such a niche industry, relatively speaking, with NFTs? Well, I don't, I don't do mainstream. I just found myself in it, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I was never an insider. Um, mm -hmm. I happen to have success in the mainstream across multiple media, right? But I do what I think is the right thing in the right place, you know. So I think if the question is, why give up the mainstream for something that's niche? My answer is, I don't even see it. I, I'm sort of like, I mean, give it a minute and maybe Web3 will be the mainstream. I certainly see it as the future um, in many ways. And so I, I'll be honest with you, I just don't have that consideration. I don't think of it like that. Yeah, no, I get you. I mean, because it seems to me like um, it's more about the creativity of it. It's more about using mm -hmm. the tools and, uh, you know, but I do, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on in terms of creative ownership. Maybe we can end with that, you know, talking about how this technology does enable the creator to have that yeah. more direct control over what they create. Well, here I am a guy, you know, grew up sort of in a pretty difficult situation, came to the States. And when I came to America, I had $50 in my pocket and then, and I stayed in, you know, um, you know, didn't have those opportunities that other people had, but made my own opportunities, I suppose is a fair thing to say. <clears throat> then I was lucky and I met the Ninja Turtle guys and then I helped do some really cool things and got lucky again, but also helped Marvel and got lucky again and helped video games and all that kind of stuff. So it's sort of like a symbiotic relationship. 
but um you know i have seen creators be treated badly and marginalized and ignored and certainly become that the the conversation in corporations that are creative corporations are how do we take this from the creator mm. i have had more stuff stolen than from me than any creator that i know mm. i have had awful experiences with that the conversations that i've been privy to the stuff that you see is simply creative people are not worthy of having the money the money goes to the money people so the money for what they so you pay them enough money to keep them going and then you take it all and you take their content and and so that you know you think about a corporation it's just a giant entity and it will beat you in court constantly you'll always lose in court so you can't fight a giant creative corporation which is run by people that do not understand creativity so they understand it as a um as a as a commodity and they understand creative people as a commodity but they don't understand any part of what it takes to create but they don't care they don't have to care they pay enough money for it to be created so they can own it and going back my entire career we felt that that was wrong you know, that the creative people have an opportunity to do it, but we tried in all kinds of media. We tried in publishing. It was really difficult. Now you come around to Web3, and if you're a creative person, you know where it lives. You know where it is on the smart contract. You know what royalties you're going to get. You know where it comes to you. You know if you can, you, you want to know how to audit something, turn on the computer and then go have a look because you will know how much money is owed to you, and it should be coming to your bank account anyway, periodically, because it's that's what's written into the contracts or whatever, right? So for creators, this is the place if you want to branch out and be given the freedom that you deserve as a creative person, Web3 and NFTs would be the place. And what did we do? We blew it. We blew it, right? It, we, we became the dot-com. We yep. let a load of people make PFP projects that were never intended to do anything. There was no creativity behind them. There was a bunch of stuff that happened and a bunch of, you know, 20 year olds walked away with two, three, four million dollars by saying, let's fucking go and all that stuff that was saying the right words the right way. And there was nothing behind it. And then, of course, you've got a bunch of now survivors, right? A bunch of really good PFP projects that were always intending to do that kind of stuff. They have a roadmap that they intended to follow instead of, because <clears throat> what was the problem with a roadmap when somebody would put that roadmap up and and then say, I'm going to do this, but their, their, their handle, as far as you know, the only way to connect to them is their, their handle is lovemonkey69. And you're like... <laughs> <laughs> good luck good luck trying to get that person to live up to what they said they would do because they're untraceable you yeah. know i'm not i'm as doxxed as it gets you know where i am right and so in this space i feel like it was incumbent upon the creators to say we have to dox right we have to say who we are so that people know who is responsible to them for the money and the opportunity that they've been given right um right now we have a couple of projects. We've got the Comet project, but the biggest thing for me right now is the um, we're doing another treasure hunt along the paths of, uh, of Bitcoin Origin, but it's my company and it's called Another Path. And what we're doing is the stuff that people actually want. It's the story and a treasure hunt and it has a theme and it has accountability and it has a fantastic community. So you, you what are the things that we wanted? Community, story gameplay 
And that's the thing that people deserve. And that's what they should be getting. And what happened is they got community in air quotes, right? But they didn't get that story and they didn't get that other stuff in so many of these projects. And that's that's what made people then pull away and say, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah, but the survivors are here now and what we're doing is the good stuff. And so when we get onto, you know, another path is actually going live, I think in two days time. Um, and what did we say we needed to do? Well, one of the things with another path is as you come into the treasure hunt, we already, when somebody kind of signs in and says, okay, we're back in your project to start, instead of having a roadmap and a promise, the first thing we do is to sell them $150 worth of books, like the fairy quest books that we do, so that they have something in their in their hands to pay them back for the initial investment that they gave us. And that was in my pocket, right? I had to pay for the printing and make sure it will happen and do it through a Kickstarter. In other words, we have to build as creators and hand back value instead of handing back a promise and then de delivering virtually no value. And, and that's something that people need to look at with every project that they see. Are you getting the value back? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like you say, that it, like the dot-com boom, there was a lot of crap, but out of that came life-changing stuff, right? In the long term. And it changed the yeah. way that the whole industry operates, which I agree. I think Web3 will, will be a big facilitator of that change yeah. so yeah. yeah absolutely and, and i'm excited to do it you know um with another path we we have such a, an amazing community already mm -hmm. and so instead of doing just a drop to start what we did was a sale or what we're about to do is a sale and from that sale you get a bunch of books you get some clues you get an additional book you get new stuff that's sort of written out that says this is what we're going to be doing and here's another comic book series that will come later and here's where we do this so instead of starting with the pfps and then going here's a picture of a thing <laughs> that is almost like a key that that gives you a promise we give you the stuff and then say here's the other stuff that we are trying to do you know and i think that just makes a big difference we got to mature as an industry now we got to turn around and work out how to do it properly you know yeah but it has absolutely. all the potential in the world yep hundred percent. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me here. And again, very honored that you uh, sat down to chat with me. So thank you very much. My pleasure of mine. Thank you so much. Awesome. Have a great day. See you. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode of NFP with Decline, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks again for listening to the Non-Fungible Podcast. See you again soon.